Good morning, TCC. We're the McFeeders family. I'm Janelle, my husband Jason, and our daughters Raina and Karis. We will be reading Acts 5, verses 1 to 15 this morning from the New International Version. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you do what made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them who he had passed. The word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, TCC. It's a privilege to be with you this morning. And today is actually a special day for me, apart from celebrating a baptism and being able to worship with you all. But five years ago today, I started on staff here at TCC. So um, I am celebrating that five-year milestone and anniversary. And I just want to say to you as a church, um, thank you. Uh, This has been an amazing place for me to grow in ministry and to serve alongside an amazing staff uh, and just contribute to the work that the Lord is doing here at TCC and in Terwilligertown and the Edmonton and around the world. And so it is a huge blessing for me. So thank you for that. And I look forward to many more years ahead. Well, this morning uh, we are looking at um, an interesting passage. So we're going to jump into that right away. I'm going to frame it for us here in a second. Uh, This past Christmas season, my wife and I decided to begin watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe from the beginning. How many of you have watched the Marvel Cinematic Universe? A few hands. Okay, this illustration is not going to work. Let's give it a try. Um, 
So we watch all these videos and you get to the end um, and there's this movie called Infinity Stone and the, 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 not, it's called Infinity War. It's something like this. Anyway, I'm a huge fan as you can tell. Um, but in this movie, the whole premise is that Earth's mightiest heroes, the Avengers, are trying to stop the, the bad guy Thanos from getting all of the Infinity Stones and wiping out half of all people who exist. Those of you who aren't into sci-fi are rolling your eyes right now. It's totally fine. But this whole movie, it's like three hours long, and you're watching the Avengers struggle and fight and push against all these obstacles. And their whole objective is to keep Thanos from getting the stones. And at one point, they figure out, man, if we just destroy this one stone, the Mind Stone, then he won't be able to use these stones to do this evil. And so as a viewer, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm totally going to spoil it for you. But as a viewer, you get to this point where they destroy the Mind Stone. And you're like, they did it. They did it. They won. They, they did it. And then Thanos, using the Time Stone, and this is so ridiculous as I say this out loud in the context of church, he uses the Time Stone and he turns back time and he brings the Mind Stone back into existence and wipes out half a civilization. You're just like, What? But how many of you love a good superhero movie, a good story of good versus evil? We think of movies like Lord of the Rings. We think of Narnia. We watch uh, these videos of heroes overcoming seemingly impossible odds to do good, to bring about good. And, And I think that when we watch these videos, there's something that really speaks to us, isn't there? We watch these videos and we think to ourselves, Uh, These heroes are slightly relatable because we want to do good as well. We want to see evil pushed back as well. We want to aspire to greatness and and we recognize that there's more to our lives simply than just living day to day. And when we watch heroes overcome obstacles, I know for myself, I, I get inspired by that. But when I watch them be pushed back, when I watch them be opposed, when I watch these heroes fall, when I watch the Avengers who had just looked like they defeated Thanos, get pushed back even more. I go, ah. But there's also something about that that I find slightly relatable. Now, I know that our lives aren't movies or books, but I think our lives are storied. And that when we go through our own lives, sometimes we feel like we, like these superheroes, face obstacles. We get pushed back. We can feel tired. We can feel worn down. We can feel unmotivated. Why is it that we can feel like life is so full of battles? Why is it that we feel like sometimes we're fighting just to stay faithful or to keep following Jesus? Well, here is an idea. Maybe we sometimes feel opposed in our lives because we are. Maybe sometimes you feel opposed in your life very simply because you are. That the life that God has called you to, the mission that God has invited you to, the good that the Lord desires you to be doing in the world, these things are, in fact, opposed. And opposition does come in many ways. Sometimes the opposition comes from inside of us, our own desires competing with God's. Or sometimes the opposition comes from the culture around us. As culture asks us to live and behave a certain way. Or sometimes the opposition comes from others who are simply against us living the ways that Jesus calls us to live. Or sometimes this opposition comes from the devil or from Satan himself. Now some of you may be thinking, a a devil? Really? Come on. 
We know better than that. We're living in the 21st century. But I have to ask you, what if our Western world is actually blind to a whole dimension of reality? A spiritual dimension where there is a hidden but influential worker of death, of theft, and destruction. Jesus tells us that the enemy's mission is to kill and steal and destroy. And he contrasts that to his own mission. That we would have life and have it abundantly. So friends, if you are feeling tired or worn out, if you're feeling like there's something that's maybe keeping you from entering into the life that God has you, has for you, or something that's keeping you from doing the good that God has called you to, well, there is. Now, what does this have to do with the book of Acts? Well, remember, we are reading Luke's documentation of history. We're reading about the disciples of Jesus carrying on the work of Jesus. And this morning, I want to camp on a recurring theme that we witness in the book of Acts. A theme which we face in various degrees in our own lives. The theme of opposition. As we read through the book of Acts, we see the early church is opposed. Over and over and over again. And it seems with every victory comes some form of opposition. And while we can't camp on this theme every single week as we go through the series, I wanted to take time this morning to focus in on it as we look at three narratives uh, from our text this morning. Um, This morning we arrive at Acts chapter 5, verse 6 to 7. The first of the three narratives was read for us. Pastor and commentator John Stott, he titles this section of Scripture, Satanic Counterattacks, which, what a great title. (laughs) And as he sees in these narratives, a subtle work of the devil against the church. So I'll be using Stott's emphasis this morning, and hopefully as we talk about opposition, I want to give you a framework to, as you read Acts, to help you to see how was the church opposed and how do they respond. That's not at all limited to this section, but that's what we're going to focus on uh, this morning in in these texts. So let's jump into it. The first of our texts is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. This first story shows the church under opposition from moral compromise. So we just had the story read for us, so I'm not going to get into it too much. But very simply, what happens in the section before is a man named Barnabas sells a field. And this is commendable. And the whole idea that's going on is that people are contributing what they have to the good or benefit of others. So someone like Barnabas says, I have this field, I'm going to sell the field. And let's use the proceeds to help the poor, the sick, the hurting, the broken. And that's exactly what they did. Now this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, look at this opportunity and say, hey, we should do this too. Look, look at Barnabas, he's getting a lot of attention. He's getting a lot of praise. Perhaps we too can get this praise. Now the phrase that's used in Acts, uh, this whole idea of withholding funds, commentators suggest that Ananias and Sapphira not only withheld something, but they had actually stolen from the church because the assumption with the, the, with the phrase is that there was a, a an agreement made before the property was sold that all of the proceeds would go to the apostles and to the work of the church. And so they make this agreement with the apostles. They sell the field. And something happens in this couple. Where suddenly they they look at all the money that they had sold the field for and they go, man, this is a lot of money. Well, if if we don't give it all to the church, they'll never know, right? But they did know. (laughs) 
So the sin here is that of stealing, deceit, and hypocrisy. John Stott writes that the complaint is not that they lacked honesty, but that they lacked integrity. They wanted the prestige of sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. Their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. Now Peter saw this as Peter saw this right away. And he called them out for this behavior. Peter saw this as more than just sin, though. He saw it as an action taken by a member of their community which threatened the integrity of the whole. Now, something that tips us off to that is that in verse 11 here in, in this chapter is the first time that the word church appears in the book of Acts. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? But we need to pay attention to that. Because this word church, um, we might better translate it into English as the word assembly. And it's this idea of people coming together for a particular purpose. This community of believers, this church, this assembly, was meant to be a people of a common trait or commitment. Peter saw this commitment to Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, as being threatened by this act of Ananias and Sapphira. So Peter responds with boldness as he confronts them. And what's the consequence? They breathed their last. Now it's important to note in this text that Peter does not declare Ananias and Sapphira dead, nor does the text say, um, say explicitly that God struck them dead. However, there's no doubt from this text that Ananias' death was related to his sin. Well, this text obviously raises considerable questions for us, doesn't it? All the commentators I read on this passage said that it is one of the most complicated um, and confronting texts of the book of Acts. So thank you, Pastor Norb, for allowing me to preach this morning. And it raises questions for us. Questions like, how could a loving God do this? We question the character of God. We struggle because we have an issue reconciling how our more favorable attributes of God, how, of, of love and grace and peace, How do those attributes line up with the God of judgment that we're reading about here in Acts 5? We ask, where is the grace? We ask, where is the love? And while proper study and meditation, I believe, will produce the answers to this question, we can't ignore that Scripture teaches us that God is not only a God of love and grace, but one of judgment. Let this story remind us that our actions matter. How we live our lives matters. The things that we do matter. We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Jesus will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. Romans 14 10 also confirms this, that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. God cares about our actions. And while I'd say I don't believe you'd experience death for stealing from the offering plate, I wouldn't risk it. The second question that this raises is, why isn't this happening today? Because this sin isn't unique. Stealing, deceit, pride, you could name a huge list of them. Why aren't people dropping dead left, right, and center uh, from their sin today? Is it a lack of confrontation? Is it a lack of people calling others out for their sin? Well, I don't think so. Because while the sin is not unique, the stage in the life of the church is. 
In the infancy of the church, a lesson on, serious, on the seriousness and the consequences of sin was important. All the commentators parallel this story to one in Joshua chapter 7. And in Joshua chapter 7, we have the story of Achan. And Achan was someone who, like Ananias and Sapphira, stole something for his own benefit. Commentator F.F. Bruce puts it this way. In both narratives, an act of deceit interrupts the victorious progress of the people of God. So where Achan stole in the, in the book of Joshua and faces death, so too here, Ananias and Sapphira. And we see this parallel of the people of God in their infancy uh, moving forward and it being held back. The opposition of moral compromise was not able to take root in the early church. When I look around the early, when I look around the church today, I see that this type of attack continues. It seems almost monthly that a headline talks about the moral failures of the church or the moral failures of those who are leading the church. When I consider my own life, I think of how regularly I am tempted to act contrary to how I know that I should. And I wonder how many of you maybe sit this morning thinking about that. How often do you feel tempted to act contrary to how you know you should? So how do we stand up against this type of oppression? This type of opposition, sorry. An opposition that calls us to moral compromise. I think the first lesson we have here is facing opposition is to stand firm against the enemy. Peter called out the enemy right away. In Ephesians chapter 6, we read that we need to put on the full armor of God so that we can take a stand against the devil's schemes. Earlier in Ephesians, we read that we should not give the devil a foothold in Ephesians chapter 4. And that word foothold, you could translate to be a possibility or an opportunity. Do not give the enemy a place. And I believe that Jesus accused the Pharisees of having done just this. He accused the Pharisees of serving the devil, not God, in John chapter 8. So friends, we need to stand against the enemy and recognize that he is at work. We need to recognize that there is a spiritual force that is bent on killing, stealing, and destroying. We need to recognize that we're being opposed. And in recognizing it, we need to stand against it. We recognize, as 1 Peter says, that our enemy is roaring like a lion, looking to see who he might devour. I believe we do this as we recognize patterns of discouragement, disappointment, or temptation in our own lives. When we pay attention to what's going on in our, with our thoughts and our desires. Just recently, I, my mind was entertaining thoughts around an area of sin that I hadn't entertained in years. And I remember being like, God, why am I thinking about this? Why is my mind going to this place? And it's just like I clue in of like, of course. <laughs> the enemy, he wants to kill and steal and destroy. He's not interested in me living a life of victory. And in being aware of that possibility, in being aware of a spiritual force that's bent on my destruction, I'm able to bring that to the Lord in prayer. So we pay attention to what's going on. And we ask the bigger questions. Is there more going on here than what I see with my own eyes? I believe that Jesus gave us in the Lord's Prayer um, tools to help us deal with this type of, this type of opposition. Because in the Lord's Prayer, we're invited to live a transparent life, confessing to God our temptation, our struggle, 
and praying for deliverance. Well, as the story goes on, we see that after Peter deals with this issue, when he snuffs it out right there, when he calls out the enemy for what it is and puts an end to it, we see that the church continues to grow. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So let's move on to the second story. The apostles are arrested and on trial. Acts chapter 5, verse 17 to 42. I don't have time to read the whole story, but what goes on here? We have the Sadducees watching the apostles engaging in ministry. And things are going well. People are being healed. The church is growing, but the Sadducees are jealous. They don't like that this is happening. So they arrest the apostles, and now they're in prison. But what happens? An angel comes and lets them out of prison. There's a miraculous release. What do the apostles do? Do they go into hiding? Do they spread themselves out among Jerusalem? Do they get strategic about how they might counterattack the Sadducees? No. They go right back doing what they were doing. Preaching. Teaching the word of God. Healing the sick. So the Sadducees go and they bring them in for trial. They arrest them a second time. And it's important to note that this is the second time we see the apostles on trial in the book of Acts. The first time is in in chapter 4. And in chapter 4, that they were charged to not preach Jesus. They said, we're going to let you go, but don't preach Jesus. And here they are preaching Jesus. And we read two reasons for the Sadducees arresting them. The first is their jealousy, of course. And the second, I think, is fear. Because part of the, the message of the apostles was that the religious leaders killed Jesus. And the Sadducees point out, he's saying, you're making us guilty of the death of Jesus. Stop doing that. So how do the apostles respond? They respond with boldness. Their response to them is, yes, you are guilty of killing Jesus. This, of course, makes the Sadducees frustrated and angry that they decide they want to kill all of the apostles. Now we need to pause on this because in the earlier arrest, we're dealing with Peter and a couple of disciples, uh, a couple of the apostles who were arrested. Uh, But here we have all of the apostles. And remember, in the book of Acts, the importance of the twelve, the importance of all of the apostles. And here we have a religious leader wanting to put to death all of them. Now here in this passage, we read about God's miraculous provision in the face of opposition. First, they are released from prison by an angel. But then again, we read the grace that comes from Gamaliel. And he sets the people free. The second story, I believe, shows us that opposition can come from the world around us. We see this type of opposition throughout history. Under Nero in the mid-first century, Christians were imprisoned and executed, including probably Paul and Peter. Under Domitian at the later half of the first century, oppressed Christians who refused, uh, Christians were oppressed who refused to pay honors that he demanded. Marcus Aurelius in the second century, believing that Christianity was dangerous and immoral, he turned a blind eye to violence that was happening against Christians. Under Decius in in the mid-third century, thousands of Christians died, including prominent bishops for refusing to sacrifice to the imperial name. And under Emperor Diocletian, also at the late half of the third of the fourth century into the sorry, at the third century into the fourth, he issued four edicts that were to intend that were intended to stamp out Christianity altogether. He ordered churches to be burned, scriptures to be confiscated, clergy to be tortured, 
and Christian civil servants to be deprived of their citizenship. And even today, in the 21st century, the church continues to face persecution. We are wonderfully free here in Canada to worship God without fear of threat or violence. But we know that across the world, there are Christians who are worshiping in secret and in hiding. From its infancy to today, Christianity has been opposed by outward forces. And the miraculous release that we read about here in chapter 5 of Acts is not always the end of the story. We rightfully remember and pray for our Christian brothers and sisters around the world who are facing persecution. But what lessons might we learn from the apostles and how they responded to this opposition? Lesson number two, in facing opposition, live with integrity. Live with integrity. Now, this passage is so great. When, they, when the, you have them arrested, they get out of prison, they're back preaching, they bring them back for trial. The Sadducees are just angry. And they say, stop it. Stop living for Jesus. Stop preaching the gospel. Stop doing the things that you're doing. And how do they reply? We must obey God rather than human beings. Friends, we must not let experiences of opposition be an excuse for our disobedience. In the midst of opposition, we need to cling to God's word. We need to cling to what we know to be true. We need to cling to our convictions and persevere. We can have comfort in this because the apostles' obedience was not to some sort of far-off deity. It was not to an ideology. But their obedience and our obedience is to a personal God who revealed himself to them and who has revealed himself to us. A God who has been with them in their trial and one who they knew that would be with them till the end. The apostles had witnessed Christ's suffering. They had witnessed him die. But they knew that God had the final say over even death itself. Do we believe that too? Do we believe that God is able to care for us and sustain us for his purpose, for his kingdom, and for our lives? Well, the Pharisees believed that. Gamaliel did. And I love his response here. If it's from God, you'll not be able to stop these men. You'll only find yourselves fighting against God. Do we believe that same thing in our lives? That if the life God has called us to, if it's actually from him, if the mission he has called us to, if it's actually from him, no opposition will truly be able to stop what God is up to. Another lesson we have in this passage in facing opposition is that we need to recognize that Jesus is with us. We read in Acts 5.41 that the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Friends, Jesus is with us in our suffering. The apostles saw in their suffering an opportunity to be more like Jesus. I find that incredibly hard to wrap my mind around. But epistles like 1 Peter testify to this reality. Jesus does not abandon us in our suffering. He is with us in the midst of it. He is our co-sufferer. And beyond this, from this point, we see the disciples, the, sorry, the apostles continuing on in their ministry, encouraged, continuing to boldly proclaim 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, and their ministry continues. So those are our first two stories. Let's look at the last one here at the beginning of chapter 6. The almost distracted apostles. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. So this third story shows us, shows the mission of the church opposed through distraction. Um, again, don't have time to read this whole story, but simply what's happening is the church is engaged in reaching out to the needs in their community. Among those needs was that there were widows in the midst of their community who needed to be fed. And so they were distributing food to them. But an argument rose up from the Hellenistic Jews who were accusing the Hebraic Jews of, of kind of budding line or something like that. We don't know all the details around this. Uh, but the Hellenistic views felt like they were being, Jews felt like they were being overlooked in the distribution of food. Now the Hellenistic Jews were Greek-speaking Jews, which means that Jerusalem was not their hometown. And this put them in an even more difficult situation because having returned to Jerusalem, they likely had very low supports because it was not where they were from. The Hebraic Jews, on the other hand, were Hebrew-speaking Jews who were likely locals. They would have grown up in the area. But the problem that was, came up with them being overlooked, they brought this to the apostles. They said, you need to deal with this. But the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. So the social care ministries of the church were already in full swing here. But this problem rose up. And just as the apostles have been doing throughout these narratives, they respond quickly and boldly and they address this issue. Now something I want to note here is that the issue was important. Feeding the widows in, the, in Jerusalem was important. They're not saying that that is less important or that that's not something that they should be doing. But they're recognizing that it's not what God had called them to do. In fact, they recognized that to do this well would require a significant amount of resourcing. So they go on to appoint seven men who were going to oversee the distribution of food and this care ministry. And once again, we see the apostles overcoming. This third passage reveals how distractions, even good ones, can keep us from engaging in the mission that God has called us to. So what's our fourth lesson this morning? Lesson four in facing opposition is recognize where distraction has led to neglect. We need to recognize where distraction has led to neglect. Friends, it's all too easy to find excuses to be distracted. And distraction is a normal part of our life, and distraction in and of itself is not inherently wrong. But too much distraction can lead to us neglecting the things that God has called us to do. And I got to imagine the disciples, because what if looking at the, the booming success of this early church and the booming success of their, their social care ministries, if they just said, yeah, this is great. We can stop preaching and teaching and we'll just keep being the church here. We'll meet all these needs. We'll set aside our responsibilities of proclaiming the gospel because things on that end are just going so good. What if they thought that they were done? But no, they knew that God had called them to preach and teach the word of God and to pray. And so they dug into that task. They set aside, they dealt with the distraction, and then they moved on in what God had called them to do, being faithful to what God had called them to do. 
So my question for us this morning is, are there things that you know you should be doing that you simply are not? Are there areas where you've allowed yourself to maybe become a little lazy? Are there things you're putting off? Putting off things that you know are right. Putting off things that you know you should do. What if, all, what, what if that is more than just distraction, but is actually opposing something God wants to do in your life? What would it look like for you this morning to declare that it is not right for me to neglect and then fill in the blank? Maybe it's not right for me to neglect going to church. It's not right for me to neglect spending time in God's Word. It's not right for me to neglect prayer. It's not right for me to neglect serving in the way God has called me to serve. It's not right for me to neglect doing good in the areas I know I can do good. It's not right for me to neglect any longer. And as we've seen with the following two, the previous two stories, we read again of the church growing. As the disciples press into what they know God had called them to do, the word of God spread. And the numbers of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Wow. Why did that happen? Because they chose not to be distracted. So friends, I hope this morning you can see in these three different stories and throughout the whole book of Acts, the ministry of the church, the work of the apostles did not go unopposed. Various circumstances rose up over and over again, pushing them back. And I think if you examine your own life, and I know as I reflect on my own life, I see different ways where I feel like my walk with Jesus has been opposed, where my faithfulness to him has been opposed. And what can I learn from the apostles this morning from this text? We need to stand firm against the enemy. We need to live with integrity in the midst of opposition. We recognize that Jesus is with us in the midst of the difficulty that we're facing. And we need to recognize where distraction has led to neglect. Well, I'm not sure how you're hearing this message this morning. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, yeah, I have felt really opposed. In the midst of that opposition, how have you been responding? Have you given in to moral compromise? Have you gone along with something you know is wrong just because you felt intimidated? Do you live distracted from what you know you should be doing? Well, I hope you can be inspired this morning by the boldness of the apostles. In each case, responding faithfully by overcoming the opposition and pushing forward to see the church grow. I want to invite you to pray with me as the worship team joins me here on the platform. Yeah, Father God, we thank you for the testimony of Acts. One that over and over again shows the story of your church growing. Shows your people becoming more and not less. Lord, showing your people overcoming. And Lord, this morning as we sit together, I'm sure it's not difficult for us to think about ways in which we have felt opposed in our own lives. And Lord, we bring those circumstances before you now. And Lord, maybe we recognize in our own lives areas that we've allowed the enemy just to, to do a work in us that 
we don't want to happen. Maybe we recognize this morning areas of moral compromise where we've made choices that we know we shouldn't have. Maybe we recognize this morning ways in which we've been really quiet and not bold in doing what you've called us to do for fear of others uh, criticizing or ridiculing us. Or maybe we recognize this morning areas in our lives where we have been so distracted. Areas where distraction has led to neglect. And so, Lord, we pray by your grace that as we reflect on that, Lord, you would help us to join with you, Jesus, in being a people who overcome that opposition. Lord, help us to be a people this morning who say no to the enemy, who say no to distraction, and who are found faithful pursuing you and and walking with you in our day-to-day lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.